There's clever engineers. But no. Time for ASO Radio. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. It's time for another exciting episode of ASO Radio. I, of course, am your host, NC17. And this week, we are going to be bringing you a bunch of fun and exciting things. We've got some rather interesting anime news. We're going to review a couple of video games. But I know the real reason that you're here... You're dying to go in here. Our review of the Full Metal Alchemist movie, The Conqueror of Shambhala. Oh yes, all this and more on today's show. Um, got a lot of fun stuff to do, and so let's get right to it by getting to the anime news. Alright, time for the anime news. Okay, let's see here. Of course, all of our news is provided by AnimeNewsNetwork.com. Be sure to check them out. At uh, that address for all your anime news. Anyways, let's go ahead and talk about some news for this week. Pokemon Battle Frontier starts Saturday, September 9th on Cartoon Network. Also this fall, a new series of Pokemon products will be released, including a 10th anniversary magazine, a line of books for kids, and the first U.S. appearance of the Pokemon manga. Or as I like to call it, Pokemonga. Although, I do seem to recall a couple of different Pokemon manga being released a few years back. Perhaps this is the first U.S. appearance of a newer Pokemon manga. Oh, the world just needs so much more, of course. Pocket Monsters Diamond and Pearl will premiere September 28th in Japan to coincide with the related game releases. The ninth, yes, ninth Pokemon movie will be released next spring in America along with the Pokemon Diamond and Pearl games. Let's see, Castle in the Sky reaches a new milestone in Japan. Yes, Castle in the Sky, the well-known Studio Ghibli film, has reached its 200th straight week on the Oricon's Top 300 sales charts, joining fellow Ghibli film My Neighbor Totoro as the only Japanese DVDs to ever reach the milestone. My Neighbor Totoro ran for 242 weeks, uh, starting from September 2001, Castle in the Sky has currently ran 200 weeks from October 2002, uh, and comparatively, Kiki's Delivery Service has done 190 weeks, Spirited Away did 184 weeks, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind did 136, and The Matrix Special Edition, which is listed for some reason, uh, 129 weeks. Alright, well, the Speed Grapher Volume 2 insert lists a couple of dates for some upcoming Funimation uh, manga releases. Now, of course, uh, these dates are, you know, um, may change, but just because that's the case doesn't mean you can't use them as a uh, guideline for when to expect some new manga. Briefly, for November 7th, we have the Lupin Movie Pack, Nagima Magic 4-1 Magical Enhancements, Trinity Blood Chapter 2. November 15th sees Bucky the Gappler, No Turning Back. Balasisk, The Parting of Ways. Dragon Ball Z Movie Pack, Full Metal Panic, TSR, Tactical Ops 1. Uh, November 21st sees Gonzo Pack 1, featuring Desert Punk and Speed Graffer. Gonzo Pack 2 featuring Basilisk and Trinity Blood and Case Closed The Exploits of Genius November 28th we'll see the release of Moon Phase, Phase 2 Speed Grapher 2 and Tenji Moyo Ryo Oki Final Confrontations December 5th we'll see Nagima Magic 501 Magic Outside the Classroom December 12th we'll see Kodacha Volume 10 Birthdays, Kisses and Misses Oh My of course, that series is so long, you'll probably be hearing about release dates for the next two years. 
Uh, December 19th, we'll see Black Cat, Volume 1, Lupin Movie Pack 6 through 10, uh, Rumbling Hearts, Volume 1, Trinity Blood, Yu Yu Hakusho, Third Strike. So, plenty of releases coming from Funimation, and apparently they're not all manga releases. Alright. Animigo picks up Yawara. Animigo has licensed Yawara, a fashionable judo girl. Expect the first box set in early 2007, the uh, Animigo website reads, though we don't guarantee this timeline. Animigo will hold an extremely fashionable pre-order for the show, although of course what that means is up in the air. Uh, Previous Animigo pre-orders featured a degrading price scheme in which the final price dropped as the number of pre-orders rose. However, since this is the first uh, anime license that Funima- <laughs> I mean, that Animigo has done since 2001 with Your Under Arrest TV, it may be a completely different system slash pre-order incentive that they use, since really all they've been doing up to this point is re-releasing their back catalog in the form of DVDs and replacing their VHS with them. Okay, so Yahoo Movies has posted an exclusive list of the Autobots, a.k.a. good guys, and Decepticons, a.k.a. bad guys, that will appear in Michael Bay's Transformers movie. Uh, For those who love their Transformers, the Autobots are going to be Optimus Prime, Bumblebee, Jazz, Ricochet, and Ironhide, whereas the Decepticons will include Megatron, Starscream, Brawl, Bonecrusher, Barricade, Scorponok, Frenzy, and Blackout. This film will premiere July 4th, 2007. After all, nothing says independence more than uh, powerful transforming robots that are self-conscious. Future Quake, OEL manga anthology pulled due to plagiarism. Yes, the UK uh, original English language manga anthologies issue number two had a falsely submitted cover. Following allegations that the cover art for Manga Quake Issue 2 had been used without the original artist's consent, the publisher, Future Quake, has recalled the issue and offered an exchange copy to all readers who returned their copy of the issue. According to Future Quake, the cover art in question was submitted by an artist who claimed that the artwork was an original piece. However, an artist by the name of Hoon contacted Future Quake and contested that the artwork in question was a cropped copy of his own original piece, Soothe. Hoon's Deviant Art account shows that his version of the artwork predates Manga Quake issue number two by over a year's worth of time. Much of the discussion between Hoon and Future Quake has been posted by Hoon in the Future Quake forum and can be read on their ofi- and can be read on their official message board. All right, so Otacon 2006 keeps growing and growing, but this year didn't grow quite as much as they expected. You see, Otacon 2006 brought in 22,302 attendees. Last year, the convention had a total of 22,000. So only 302 new people attending? That doesn't sound like large growth to me. Perhaps they need natural convention enhancement. Anyways, Animax India is going all English. That's right, India's 24-hour anime network, Animax, is now going to broadcast entirely in English instead of subtitling with uh, English and playing Japanese audio. Quoted the uh, country manager, Sunder Aaron, We've converted the Animax feed into English only to better meet the interests of our target audience in the metros, the metropolitan areas. We've targeted the young adults of India, who we all see at cyber cafes, playing video games, downloading music, and wearing branded clothes. Boy, if he's not going and pigeonholing the entire demographic into a little set of activities. Toonami Jetstream has had over 9.5 million streams of their video programs. Yes, indeed, they've had 725,000 unique visitors in their first month alone. You see, the service offers full-length episodes of Naruto, Hikaru no Go, Mar, and The Prince of Tennis, all basically anime-focused on competition and physical arts. But uh, enough of that, though. You can go to uh, their website, which I believe is just uh, Jetstream or Toonami Jetstream or something like that, and watch a bunch of anime for free, so uh, you shouldn't complain too much, right? All right, well, speaking of Naruto, he has been going neck and neck with Roots Basket to become the highest-selling manga of all time in America. 
Yes, by reaching number 24 on the U.S. Today book list earlier this week, Fruits Basket Volume Number 14 became the highest-ranked manga ever on the list. Naruto Volume 9 held the previous record at number 29, which Fruits Basket also tied last week. So, who's going to win in the end? The crazy ninja action, or the sweet tale of Toru and her shape-shifting friends? Toya expands online anime service. Building on its Anime BB and Tokusatsu Anime Archive services, Toa will announce Anime BB Premium, giving Japanese users access to 40 anime titles featuring 1,200 episodes. Single episodes will cost 100 yen each, with value packs also available. Toya expects to bring in 600 million yen from the service next year and 1 billion yen by 2008. And, hey, we got a brand new Astro Boy cell phone. However, you're going to have to order it from the Taiwanese company OKWAP. Yes, they have released a heavily customized Astro Boy phone with bum-mounted lasers. Just like the original Astro Boy, it has little laser thingies coming from his butt. In addition to their Astro Boy-themed cell phone, OKWAP has several anime, uh, I mean several Hello Kitty-themed cell phones. And sadly, even the rich otakus still have the problem of physical weight and health concerns. Yes, you see, 34-year-old Gundam fan Daisuke Daisuke Enomoto has been bumped from his September 15th space launch after failing a physical. Rest knowing Mr. Enomoto that we all can go and relate to your pain. The otaku devotes him or herself to the art of anime, and as such, it's often put by the wayside concerning physical well-being. However, uh, he was to have dressed as Char from Gundam when he took off for the International Space Station. Whether this will go and permanently see him grounded as Earth-bound, or if he will indeed make it into space after going and shaping up is yet to be determined. However, Enomoto, you all have our support, and we wish you the best. After all, whom can really say, outside of this man, that they took an authentic Gundam picture in actual outer space? The Negipod arrives in Japan in December. What is the Negipod? Well, the so-called Negipod is a 30-gigabyte iPod with 40 preloaded Nagima songs and an engraved illustration, and it will go for sale in Japan for 54,800 yen, which at this time is approximately $470. And last, but some may say not least, Bandai is threatening action against those who dare go against its will. What is it this time? Well, they've been warning fansubbers that they are prepared to take legal action if any of them attempt to fansub Ghost in the Shell, uh, the film that will be coming out here in a little while. Um, now, I don't have much more news about this as of the recording of this episode, but this isn't without precedent. There actually have been anime companies in the past that have requested fansubbers not go and sub their work. Um... Though not unprecedented, it does chaps the hides of fan subbers a bit, saying you can do this, but you can't do that. Or rather, the relationship between anime companies and fan subbers has always been a bit ill-defined. Uh, oftentimes, the anime companies will go and allow fan subs to happen, not because they couldn't take legal action if they so chose, but simply because they have higher interests in going engaging the popularity of anime and other properties which they are thinking about licensing. However, in this case, Bandai feels that Ghost in the Shell is so popular and well-known that they don't need to go and use the fan sub community as such, and instead would rather think that people fan subbing this will ha somehow cause them to lose profit. I say people who like Ghost in the Shell like it so much that they would buy the DVD whether or not they saw it fan subbed or not. After all, a fan sub lacks the English audio dub, and those people who are fanatical enough about anime to download fan subs, well, I think are oftentimes fanatical enough to pay for the DVDs. Anyways, that's going to do it for our anime news. Uh, 
in a moment, we're going to feature a review of animation runner Kurumi, I mean Kurumi, and of course, the Full Metal Alchemist, the Conqueror of Shambhala movie review. So keep on listening to ASO Radio, and we'll go and dish you all the info you need to know. Hickory Dickory Dock, it's Anime Review O'Clock. Let's start off with Animation Runner Kuromi, and then we'll shuffle on over to the Full Metal Alchemist movie. First up, Full, uh, Full, Full Animation Runner Kuromi, Conqueror of Shimbingadigindinga. Now, Animation Runner Kuromi is about a brand new 20-year-old animation uh, director by the name of Kuromi. Or rather, she has been hired to replace a man in poor health. You see, um, uh, she goes to work for a overworked, underpaid, underappreciated anime production company. And the film is actually an OAV, uh, one episode. Uh, it's all about the animation industry and how it works. Now, of course, this film is uh, about three years old, and so uh, some things can have changed, but it mainly stays true to the way things are. Um, the film is not exactly award-winning material. It um, does explain, you know, this and this and that and that go into running animation, and everything is well exaggerated beyond the point of... Um, funny. It's just, uh, at the beginning, when people are exasperated, or they're just uh, out of sorts, or disillusioned, or uh, psychotic due to all this uh, pressure, and time restraints, and budget restraints, and poor scheduling, and all of this, initially, it, it's a funny show. But by the time you get to day three, or whatever it is, of the show... Um, it's really worn thin with everybody acting over the top. I've said it before in my reviews that one of the keys to going and making an extremity seem extreme is to go and have um, a non-extreme moderate thing to go and base it off of. Or to use the classic comedy analogy, you need a straight man and you need the comedian. Why do you think that we had so many uh, late night television hosts that have co-hosts that laugh and laugh at their jokes because the co-host often plays the straight man or sometimes vice versa when the co-host goes and bounces a joke off of the host. Of course, uh, ASO Radio is no uh, newcomer to that concept. But regardless, we have um, a show here that tries too hard to go and make the ha-ha with the overstressed uh, characters and not enough time going and concentrating on telling a quality story. So essentially you get Kuromi, who is given this nickname by the previous manager. Her actual name has been contracted down to Kuromi. Uh, runs from place to place trying to get animation cells from different um, workers for the company who all have their different methods and quirks and initially she's overwhelmed and she thinks about quitting and so she turns in her resignation and then the head animation in between or whatever she is uh, I think she's a colorist says to her yeah go ahead and quit and of course this throws off Kuromi and then she explains how she used to be uh, have the animation running job and so she understands and how they've gone through a lot of people and she doesn't know what they'll do without her but it doesn't really matter she can go ahead and quit and of course this goes and revitalizes Kuromi who then takes some pointers from her on how to go and approach the various people eventually in the end they all come together and manage to go and get the show done in time through extraordinary circumstances and personal devotion on all the parties who initially only three people are working at the office but this soon becomes the entire staff with Jeromey going in heralding them all together so animation runner Kuromi, it's predictable, it gets very boring very quickly uh, the animation is of nice um, the animation is of nice quality, very fluid, very high moving. However, it just resorts to the comical 
uh, expressions, exaggerations, and, if you will, hieroglyphics of anime, such as, you know, tons of sweat drops, veins, characters going super deformed, having jagged pointy teeth, uh, heads growing big, all, all those sort of little comical um, conventions that anime and manga so often use. And while it can be good uh, in moderation when it's overused, such as during the last um, dozen or so episodes of um, Power Stone, for example, it gets quite trite and tiresome. Uh, animation runner Kuromi, uh, on initial look, you see the artwork and you think it's going to be pretty awesome, and initially it seems like it's going to be. Um, and though you have to go and say... Uh, that the story and thus the characters and whatnot weren't all that interesting, really. Uh, the voice actors, given what they were given to work with, did do a nice job. So I'm going to go and give Animation Runner Kuromi a not recommended. Uh, I would have liked to have liked it, but it just didn't have anything going on for anyone watching this. I watched this with a couple of other people and we just all agreed that it could have been a lot better. And I would give it a neutral, but it was just too boring, really, to watch this. And yet, not um, it, it just didn't provide for good fodder for making fun of either. So, I'm going to have to go and give Animation Runner Kuromi a not recommended. And next up, we've got Full Metal Alchemist the Movie, The Conqueror of Shambhala. After all... We need lots and lots of uh, subtitles. Alright, so how can I best summarize this review? Well, first of all, um, if you've been wondering where they've been getting that um, different-looking cover art that they've been using for the DVD cases in North America, well, go and see The Conqueror of Shambhala, because the introductory sequence, which gives the opening credits, goes and... Uh, shows all the artwork that has been on those cases. However, uh, this is no reason to go and see the movie by itself. Uh, the Conqueror Shambhala is essentially a film that takes place two years after the end of the Full Metal Alchemist anime. I would like to note before going on further with this review that the Full Metal Alchemist anime um, goes and uh, diverges quite a lot from the manga. When the anime first began production work, uh, only um, part of the manga had been released. And so um, the anime and the manga diverge about the point where the greed storyline happens. So everything that happens past uh, the death of greed in the anime does not happen in the manga and as such can be thought of as not official canon. Uh, in other words, the stuff that happens in this movie and basically half of the TV series does not actually happen in the manga. And I think that that's a very good thing because while it's fun to go and have two different versions of Full Metal Alchemist, I would hate to think that The Conqueror of Shambhala is the way things really ended up. Uh, the Conqueror of Shambhala, in this case Shambhala refers to the alchemic world, which is uh, the main thing featured in the Full Metal Alchemist TV series. Now, of course, this review can't go and avoid spoilers completely because this movie does take place after the end of the film. I mean, of the after the end of the television series. So if you don't want to hear about that, I recommend you go and skip forward to the fan mail section. However, um, for those who wish to hear what the plot is, I'll sum it up this way. Nazi wannabes go and derive rocket ships which they blast into a portal to go through the gate uh, to the other world in order to attempt to conquer the alchemic world and use it to bolster their ranks and military power so that they can join the Nazi party and the Third Reich during their uprising to power shortly before the uh, events of World War II unfold. And, yeah, it's not the most, um, it's not what you think of when you think of Full Metal Alchemist. A lot of things that happen at the end of the anime that you assume to be one way or another uh, is not the way that they end up in the movie. In the movie, several characters that ended up in one situation are a completely different situation 
um, by the time this movie is supposed to happen. For example, Izumi, who is the teacher of the boys, uh, is no longer teaching Alphonse in this movie. Um, Alphonse, who is left on the alchemic world, um, is trying to go and get his brother back. And meanwhile, Ed, who is on our side of the gate, or in the science world, is trying to go and get back to his world um, by himself. And one thing leads to another, and eventually it is found out that... Um, let, me, let me backtrack. The movie opens with a really long flashback, at least 10 minutes long, but possibly more like 15 or 20, of um, what it turns out to be Ed going and telling his science world brother's counterpart about the crazy adventures that his, him and his brother had taking down the scientists in their world for the military, which is not covered at all in the anime or manga. As far as I'm aware, it's not in the manga, but I can certainly attest it is not in the anime. Um, and, uh, of course, it's uh, this story that we never knew about before is introduced because it has to do with the plot of the film. Um, but I mention this because it happens right at the start of the film, and it kind of gives you an idea for where the rest of this film is going in that uh, they take on this scientist who supposedly is all super smart and everything, but he detests alchemy and the state alchemists, and that they're like, um, the state using the alchemists and funding them has gone and put science back by so far and everything, and basically whining as he's complaining and attacking Ed and Al with some crazy steam-powered drill machinery and whatnot. But then... Once they go and take down his machinery, he reveals, oh, but, see, even though I detest your alchemy, I'm a very well-versed science in atomic structure and all this, and so I learned alchemy anyways, and I'm able to go and use it against you. And then he pulls out a frickin' atom bomb. He's got a uranium nuclear bomb on hand, and uh, it's like, what the crap is going on? Anyone familiar with Full Metal Alchemist knows that in the alchemy world, their technology is at least a 100 years behind our own. The greatest that their technology offers is guns, telephones, and trains. Um, beyond that, they don't really have much in their world. And yet, in this film, there's one scientist who goes and has a uranium bomb, seems rather unlikely to me in a world in which alchemy has been put ahead of all the other sciences as they fall by the wayside and all effort is put towards alchemic research. Now, I could go on and on about this movie, talking about this and that and, and just dissecting each little bit, but that would take too long and so I'm just going to leave, uh, leave you with a bit of summary on the things that I noticed throughout this film. First of all, the creators of this film, if you're wondering why there isn't 51 episodes, uh, I mean 52 episodes in the anime, but actually 51, something that's become common with anime companies uh, when they think they have a hot property, that allocate the budget from the 52nd episode, or last episode, if the series, of course, does not run that long, to be used for a movie. So they'll wait until the um, television show finishes its run. Then it will use profits from the television show and the leftover budget for the last, from the what would be the last episode to create a movie. And of course, this is the case with Full Metal Alchemist. It leaves the ending in such a way that you could just watch the TV show and never watch the movie. But of course, you're driven to see the movie to find out what happens to all of your favorite characters. And the creators of this movie knew this well because throughout the entirety of the film, they're providing tons and tons of fan service in the form of showing um, the science world counterparts to our favorite characters from the alchemic world. Uh, there is people that show up, the real world counterparts of uh, Dante, of, uh, well, not Dante, but, you know, Lyra, uh, the real world counterparts to, um, Alphonse's brother, of course, I mean, Edward's brother, uh, they've got Scar, they've got Lust, they've got, um, um, the, the, oh, what's his name, do, 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 Pride, 
uh, you know, the, the King Fuhrer Bradley, they have his real world counterpart. Um, they've just got tons and tons of characters such as, um, Oh, what's his name now? One of the main military guys. But my point is this, is that they keep going and showing all these real-world counterparts. And I think that if they didn't do this with the nudging, wink, wink, nudge, nudge of um, the, you know, saying, hey, look, here's your favorite character back from, you know, the dead, even though we killed them off in the movie. Oh, this is a real-world counterpart that's in the movie versus the TV series and what have you. If they took out all of these knowing references the film would not be uh, as enjoyable as it is. And that is to say, um, not that it would be slightly less enjoyable, but seeing your favorite character's real-world versions is probably the most enjoyable part of the film. And as such, the film loses quite a lot if you were to remove that element. Uh, the film itself doesn't have the greatest plot line in the world. Some people have described it as uh, bad fanfic. And I have to agree with our Anna Fanaticu, uh sister's um, publication, uh, main editor Warp Shadow, when he said that it's not so much uh, uh, that he thinks that it won't be a bad fanfic uh, st- uh, style of storyline as so much a filler episode or uh, an average fanfic. And it's definitely not like a filler episode, but it is most definitely not the um, prime of the Full Metal Alchemist animation series. Uh, the Conqueror of Shambhala just has too many crazy things. For example, um, this, there's this society. It's called the Thule Society. They want to get in good with the rising National Socialist Party, a.k.a. the Nazis, who have not come into power yet because this film, I think, takes place in the 1920s or some such. And so... Uh, in order to get in good, they want to supply them with strong military might. The way they think is to do this is to go to Shambhala, which many people theorize is, sh- is a uh, degradation of Shangri-La, uh, which turns out to actually be not uh, Shangri-La or Shambhala, but it is a portal to the alchemic world, and they want to use the, power, the alchemy power from there to be strong and powerful in this world, getting good with the Nazis, and then they can be a part of this socialist revolution. Well, the um, while it may sound good on paper, it's kind of contrived and ridiculous in execution. For example, the leader of the Thule Society, uh, this, this blonde female woman, uh, is just killing people left and right with her pistol. She's just power-hungry. Um, she goes a bit mad when she goes over into the alchemic world. And then, of course, the film gets all preachy and drawing allusions to why Germany went to war because of gypsies and Jews being within the country's borders. And then, of course, instead of saying this directly, it goes and uses the people from the alchemic world and how the leader of the full society doesn't see them as people but as monsters because she can't relate to them and see what is in them and herself, and that's why she can kill them so easily. But this is all just a thinly veiled allusion to the reasons behind World War II starting. Um, And then there's a whole plot point about some sort of psychic gypsy woman that you think is going to go somewhere, and though she is involved in the plot of the show, there is not much else that she does. It it seems like it's going to be a major element of the film, but then it just falls to being a minor plot point. And quite a ridiculous one later on as well, when suddenly she uses her psychic powers to learn all the secrets of alchemy from Al, I mean from Ed, even though she said earlier that she can read people's dreams when they're asleep, and that's how she can best read their minds. So why didn't she just see what he saw as he was dreaming? Or better yet, why does Ed have a missing arm and leg in the show? As we saw at the end of the television show, he got his arm and leg back. So why in the world he still has his body, but is missing an arm and a leg is never explained, and I think it's just shoddy work on the part of the creators of this film. The voice acting, though, very high quality, uh, uses all the same voice actors from the Full Metal Alchemist television show, so if you're familiar with that, then you know what to expect. Um, 
the the Conqueror of Shambhala tries to be a nice book end for the TV series, but also leaves a little bit open for uh, further movies, such as at the end the boys. Uh, decide that they need to go and stop this uranium bomb from getting into the hands of other people uh, because it's just too powerful and diddly and unstable a force and all this crap. Um, let's see. I, I think that more or less covers all our bases with the film. I got to see it in a nice IMAX theater, got a wraparound screen, nice seats, nice sound. So that added a bit to the film. Uh, really nice integration between the CG work and the 2D animation, but it's nothing you haven't really seen from the Full Metal Alchemist television series. Uh, another ridiculous thing, now that I remember it, that I'd like to mention, is one of the things they do is the Full Society's initial experiment with the, the gate and sending people over to the other side. They take um, some bodies of the dead, put them in uh, suits of armor, uh, which have been, I don't know, enchanted somehow, so that uh, they come to life after they go through the alchemic gate, and then they can use them as an invasion force, which I find quite uh, strange indeed, um, because on our side of the gate, in the scientific world, the alchemy is not supposed to work. But of course, you know, the film has to go and bend the rules a little bit, so as long as somebody is from the alchemy world, they've got, you know, a bit of the gate inside of them, and so if their bodies come over this side, they can perform the alchemy. But how in the world they were able, the Thule Society was able to open the gate on their own without a body, um, and then go and sand um, all of these... Okay, okay, well, I guess they do explain that in the film. It involves en Envy and Hohenheim, but even that part's a bit ridiculous in my mind, though a bit touching later on in the film. But the ridiculous part is, is besides going and sending um, the undead to go and conquer the alchemy world, uh, only one of the suits of armor goes and uh, looks different from all the others. And amazingly enough, even though it takes place on a completely different world, the one suit of armor that doesn't look like all the others, shock and surprise, looks exactly like Alphonse's armor. And so, of course, uh, this goes and involves several jokes with Alphonse going and using his alchemy to control the suit of armor and whatnot throughout the show, but just such a ridiculous thing because all the other suits of armor look exactly the same except for this one. And if they all look different or if there was a couple of different lines of suits, like let's say four or five different models of suits, I could accept this. But only one? Ah, that's just crazy crap. And I suppose that's the best way to sum up the Full Metal Alchemist movie. Instead of going and dealing with the constraints of the television series and all the rules that the manga established, they basically went, you know, it was really sad that Ed and Al were separated at the end of the TV series. Let's go and make a movie where they get back together, but, you know, let's just do whatever in between. As long as they get back together, that's fine. And so some of the crazy stuff that you saw at the end of the TV show, well, it's nothing compared to the tomfoolery that you see in The Conqueror of Shambhala. So, I'm going to give Full Metal Alchemist The Conqueror of Shambhala a neutral rating. It's not a horrible film, but you definitely cannot take somebody to it who has never seen anime or has never watched through the Full Metal Alchemist series, or they will be confused and they won't know what to do, and uh, or what to think. And for fans of the Full Metal Alchemist animation television series, it's probably uh, unavoidable that you'll go and watch this film, but just don't go into it with high hopes, and that way you'll better serve yourself. So if you're looking forward to this movie, it's supposed to come out on DVD in September, so pick up a copy, write in, and let me know what you think. Anyways, let's go ahead and mosey on over to the fan mail section of the show. So 
sadly, we don't have any fan mail this week. And that's where you come in. Go to the ASO Radio website at www.nz17.com slash radio. There you can find our fan mail submission form. Either click on the little envelope on the uh, main page or click on the link that says fan mail and you'll find our fan mail submission form where you can let us know your thoughts, comments, suggestions, and complaints. Uh, let us know what you think about our anime, video game, and manga reviews. Let us know what you would like to see us uh, cover on the show. And any suggestions on how to improve the show or formats or whatever you'd like to see the show in are more than welcome. After all, if you don't tell us what you want, we don't know what you want, and so we can't give it to you. So go ahead and check out our fan mail submission form at www.nz17.com. Send it in and let us know exactly what you want out of ASO Radio. After all, the fans make the show, and so we need your help to make ASO Radio all that it can be and meet your every anime need. Of course, uh, we're not going to start going and sending out full anime episodes. That just wouldn't be cool. But... We will go and do our best to bring you the very best anime talk radio program out there. Or as the young kids call it these days, podcast. Alright, so um, I'll go ahead and mention a couple of things real quick. We've got our fan art contest, which happens every month. Uh, the month of August is almost over. So if you want to go and get in your fan art submission for this month, you've got to hustle. And if you would like to enter our September contest, you can also do that too. Go ahead and submit art to us using our fan art submission form on the ASO Radio website at nz17.com slash radio. And remember, we give out fantastic prizes from our mystery vault to our monthly fan art contest winners. So be sure to enter that. Let's see, what else do we have to cover, 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 cover? I'm going to be doing some updates to the website in the next couple of weeks. It's going to be all for the better, of course, because I'm constantly adding new pages and features to go and make ASO Radio's website the best website we can possibly have for the best anime podcast we can possibly produce. So, um, if you have any suggestions for what you'd like to see on the website, even, feel free to write into the show. And, like I mentioned back in our anime review, I would like to know your opinions of the Full Metal Alchemist movie, TV series, manga, and anything else you'd feel like writing in on the subject of Full Metal Alchemist. As a matter of fact, I'm going to make that the fan mail subject of the week. Full Metal Alchemist, what you think of the uh, series in all of its incarnations, uh, and what your thoughts and opinions are on all the little aspects that are behind it, including the mythology, if you so desire. Anyways, um, uh, let's see, fan art, we got website updates coming. Uh, we're going to try to go and make Club NZ chock full of delightful things. Um, I'm thinking of going and making all of our high-quality Ogvorbis versions of the show available exclusively through Club NZ and only make the low quality MP3s available through the ASO Radio website and of course our podcast. Feel free to subscribe to that using iTunes or any podcatching software uh, such as the RSS readers and the news aggregators and all those other helpful little programs out there like Firefox, Thunderbird, Blogbridge and more. Uh, speaking of which, I'm going to be updating the uh, InfoDesk page on the ASA Radio website to include information on subscribing to our podcast and RSS readers I recommend. After all, the ASA Radio um, RSS news feed is not just for ASA Radio, but for all of NZ17 Productions. So you can get the latest Anifanatiku and MacroOV updates by subscribing to that as well. Of course, if you're just using iTunes, you won't be able to see that as iTunes only lists podcasts. So if you want to get all the news, you need to use an RSS reader like those included with many popular email clients, as well as uh, the Firefox and Opera web browsers, and soon enough, Internet Explorer when version 7 comes out. Uh, okay, well, let's see. I don't think there's too much more that I need to cover. Um, like I mentioned on episode 100, we now have a um, a call-in number if you would like to go and give a shout-out on air to somebody, or you'd like to submit your fan mail in the form of audio, and that way we can hear your lovely voice on the air, feel free to go ahead and give us a holla. The number is uh, 1, area code 775 
5141140. Once again, that number is 775-514-1140. Uh, and of course, you can use a SIP compatible VoIP application, uh, such as Gizmo Project, which is found at gizmoproject.com, um, in order to go and not have to rack up telephone charges. Anyways, um, that's it for the fan mail section. Gonna be trying to get a new host in. I said that I'd have one by episode 105, and I'm gonna stick by that. But hopefully I can go and get one to show up as early as episode 1 or 2, uh, 102 or 103. So, uh, I'm hoping to get somebody on board. And, it just may be, um, an actual Japanese person. And if that's the case, well, we're gonna have a interesting new perspective and more insight into the anime world than we ever thought possible. Okay, well, I think that's enough about our fan mail. Like I said, hop to the website if you've got any fan mail or fan art to submit. That way this section can be much more interesting than me just telling you about stuff that you could do and Instead, I can read the stuff that you have done. And, of course, if you'd like to see any of our past fan art, just go to the fan art page, and we provide a link to our artist alley, where you can see all of our past convention pictures and our wonderful official and fan art of our mascot, Bandy. All right, let's mosey on over to the hot spot, because, baby, I'm feeling hot, hot, hot. Red rum, red rum. I mean, uh, Meteos. Meteos. Uh, I'm going to be reviewing Kirby Canvas Curse and Meteos, both for the Nintendo DS, for our video game hotspot review. Uh, Kirby's Canvas Curse, we're gonna start things off with that. Kirby Canvas Curse is essentially a sadistic game. The story involves Kirby being uh, cursed by a witch who goes and removes his arms and legs, and so he's just a roly-poly pink ball. You, the player, must go and assist him in his quest to go and get back to normal. And the way that you do this is using your magical rainbow paint to paint paths which will go and hurdle Kirby along. Um, and you can attack enemies and steal their abilities just like any Kirby game, but in this game you have to stun them with the stylus and then when Kirby runs into them, he'll go and gain their power. To use the power, you tap on Kirby. Um, the game sounds like an interesting premise, and it is interesting, but I found the execution to be rather frustrating, because in the game you're not in control of the main character, you act more like uh, the main character's assistant, helping him along through various puzzle-like stages and against enemies and whatnot. Uh, when you go underwater, you have to adjust yourself because the controls are backwards. Instead of making paths that go up and to the right or up and to the left, you have to make paths that go down and to the right and down and to the left because Kirby floats and you need to make him go down and around to go and get him back up out of the water or wherever you need him to go. Uh, it's very frustrating controlling the game because you don't have unlimited paint. You only go and recharge your inkwell, if you will, by going and having Kirby be on the land or attacking enemies and whatnot. And of course, time uh, also goes and fills this well. But it's really frustrating because unlike a traditional Kirby game where you're jumping around, swallowing em enemies, floating around, uh, attacking uh, left and right, and getting to the end of the stages, in this you're trying to go and control Kirby as he's a loose ball going around, rolling slowly back and forth. And so it can be quite agitating if you're used to a standard gameplay mechanism, but if you're new to games or just want something different, it can be quite liberating. Uh, there's three different mini-games which you encounter in between worlds, and each time you play a mini-game, it becomes uh, harder and harder, and you go up through levels. I believe there's three levels for each mini-game, and uh, you can get through all the mini-games by going and playing uh, through all the stages. I found, though, that uh, the inter interface for the game, uh, the menus, were rather trying because save games, for example, move up and down the screen. If you're a person that suffers from movement disabilities or is just not that dexterous, it can be rather aggravating trying to go and catch your save game as it moves up and down the screen. Not to mention the fact that um, the entire game uses a stylus, so unless you have nimble fingers, you'll find this game to be nothing but an exercise in frustration. 
However, the music is mainly nice and enjoyable, but I felt that it could have been a little bit more, um, just a little bit more. I, I don't know how to put it better than that, but it just seems that the music, while good, could have used a bit more in the way of, I don't know, being more upbeat, having more music, more variety. I'm not sure what I'm getting at. Uh, but I did enjoy the music overall. Um, the, there's not too much to really say about the game. You're just drawing paths through the air to, that Kirby follows. Uh, he can go and roll around on the ground, but if he gets hit by too many enemies, or if he falls down a bottomless pit or something, he dies. You have, like, uh, three little uh, bars on your life bar. Um, no, five. And if you pick up power-ups, you can recharge it. Um... And there's just not too much really to be said. The mini-games are fun and interesting because they don't play much like the normal game. But a lot of points I felt that they weren't going and using the stylus because it was the best control mechanic, such as for the menus and whatnot. Um, or when, uh, at one point when you do the stage select where you want to pick where you want to play, there's a big wheel that has colored gems on it. The way that you select a world is uh, by going and rotating the wheel with your stylus. And this can be uh, can take quite a long time and be frustrating to do instead of just going and picking up at the last world you were on or having uh, just a menu on the screen showing all nine of them and then you just tap it. You have to actually move the wheel. And this can be rather frustrating if you're getting game overs or coming back to the game later and you've gotten rather far. Um... I really wanted to like Kirby's Canvas Curse. I went in with high expectations, and while it is definitely a game that requires the stylus to play, you could not do this game without it, I felt that this was not so much the case because it was a new gameplay experience that needed the stylus, but rather they decided to cripple Kirby, both figuratively and literally, in order to go and make the game most adaptable for a stylus. After all, you couldn't draw lines with the D-pad and buttons as well as you could draw them wherever you need them with the stylus, but if they hadn't have gone and made Kirby a limbless, helpless little blob that needs you to do everything for him, that wouldn't have been an issue in the first place. So it's more like adapting a standard Kirby game to a non-standard control system just because they had to rather than in order to make the game more fun. And as it stands, Kirby Canvas Curse is not as much fun as a standard Kirby game would be otherwise. So I got to give them an A for effort, but an F for execution. And so this all comes and averages out to a neutral for Kirby's Canvas Curse. Another game which heavily requires the Nintendo DS's stylus is Meteos. Meteos comes from the same creator as Space Channel 5 and I believe Daytona, uh, which of course is a Sega game. Um, Meteos, though, is not a music game such as Rez or Space Channel 5 or a racing game, but in fact is a puzzle game. Unlike similar games such as Zookeeper or other tile-based games which involve swapping around characters uh, or tiles, Meteos uh, doesn't allow you to swap in any direction. You can only move uh, blocks up and down. No left and right movement here. And uh, the way that the game works is that the Meteos are what the little pieces are called on the screen. You need to line up at least three in a row in order to turn the Meteos into rockets. And these rockets are essentially a platform with rockets underneath that blasts the pieces on top into the stratus excuse me, into the stratosphere. You have to go and try to line up as many as you can to go and get your screen clear. The whole basis of this is competitive play. Even in the single player game, you're actually playing against the computer. And whoever has all their blocks fill up first loses. So if you happen to go and have your screen fill up with Meteos, then you lose. But if your opponent... Uh, in this case, in the single-player game, the computer has his screen fill all the way up, then you succeed and you either go on to the next round or the next story segment. Uh, Medios, though, oftentimes while you play, you're going to find yourself going, oh, if only I could move this piece over to the next column and then it would be so good. Um, as a matter of fact, you cannot just go and make three pieces come together, form rockets, and shoot the pieces off the stage. Medios is actually, the storyline is that this evil eye, kind of like the Eye of Sauron from Lord of the Rings, 
has uh, gone and sent all these meteors towards the planets in order to destroy them. And then um, people on one Earth-like planet go and happen to discover that if you put three similar meteors next to each other, they turn into rockets and propel upwards and thus send the meteors back to Medio, the evil Sauron-like eye. Um, so, uh, oftentimes, you're on different planet, well, every stage is a different planet with a different species that is dancing and cheering you on. And you're trying to go and line up the meteos. Well, different places have different gravities, atmospheres, so on and so forth. So sometimes just lining up the blocks is enough to go and blast them off the screen. But other times it'll have too heavy of a gravity, and so you'll need lots and lots of rockets to go and blast your platform off into space. Or perhaps it has a thick atmosphere, so it's easy to get them off the surface, but not so easy to go and get them out of the atmosphere. So a bit of a variety there, but the variety can turn out to be more um, confusing than anything because you'll think that you have done something that should be enough to get the medios off of the screen, but you still have a lot more work to do. One of the things that I thought was cool that they did with this title is that the menus can all be arranged by yourself. So if you don't like the load game or story mode or whatever being placed where it is, you just use the stylus to drag it where you would want it to be on the screen. So you can customize all the menus to be exactly how you like, which I think is rather nice. Maybe a feature that other games could include, perhaps. It's not that it adds a lot to the gameplay, but it certainly goes and adds a lot to the customization. It makes it feel like it's your game, in a sense. Uh, like I said, that there's a story mode. You essentially go from planet to planet until you destroy Medio. Um, and there's three different modes in this. One which is just four straight planets. Another which branches out into a tree-like structure. And another which has a, a train-like branching structure. And each different course will go and yield you different unlockables and a different end story segment. So there's a lot of replay value. If uh, you like puzzle games, you can replay this game over and over, but get the reward of seeing different story endings for the game, uh, many of which are very funny and crazy, such as when uh, one ending that I saw, where all the planets decide that launching meteos at each other could be a great competitive sport because it has such a dangerous edge and everything. Uh, so Meteos is, is uh, you can also play it multiplayer as I said earlier even when you're playing single player you're playing against the computer but in multiplayer mode you can play it up to uh, four players all together and you can play it either with or without a Meteo cartridge for each person uh, like most of the Nintendo DS games you can use the wireless connectivity to go and upload a small portion of the game's code to each person's system and then you can all play using just one cartridge one as the master server uh, who has the cartridge and everybody else's clients connecting to it uh, Medios is a lot of fun but like I said a bit frustrating that you can't move the pieces side to side and uh, the different gravities and whatnot can be a bit confusing for a player. Um, it's not exactly um, a simple pick-up-and-play puzzle game. It has a bit more meat to it than just that, but it is definitely not a hardcore story-based video game either. Uh, it, it's a bit of an odd duck, but then again, all of Mizuguchi's games seem to be this way. I personally enjoyed Medios for what it is, but at the same time, there isn't much to it either. So I would say that buying Medios at uh, $30 or more would be a ridiculous price to pay. But if you could find it for $20 or less, that would probably be the best price range for this game. Like I said, it doesn't play like a traditional uh, puzzler where you go from level to level automatically. There's actually transition screens and little bits of story and different aliens and whatnot. So it takes a little bit of getting used to, but it's a nice change from the usual. And that seems to be the entire theme for the Nintendo DS and its games lineup. I'm going to go ahead, though, and give Medios a neutral... I felt that the gameplay itself could be better, and while some of the music tracks and things are uh, very enjoyable, some of the graphics uh, tile pieces are very nice, some of it aren't all that appealing because Medios, the name of the game, 
in this case is variety and they try to go and provide all sorts of different pieces of music and puzzle pieces and whatnot so while it gives you a nice amount of variety it also doesn't give you a nice cohesive feeling either so Medios, I'm going to go ahead and give a neutral it's not a bad game it's not a fantastic game but it is a nice fun little distraction so with that said let's wrap up this episode well, we here at ASO Radio thank all of you for listening in. We're always glad to have you join us, and of course, without you, there'd be no point to do the show. After all, it's fun to watch anime and review it, but if nobody cares what you're talking about, well, then there's no point in putting it out on the Internet. So be sure to share ASO Radio with your friends, family, and, you know, let them know that we're the number one source for online anime audio reviews. After all, you don't want them going and buying something that's a piece of crud. <laughs> it's a waste of money, a waste of time, and worst of all, could turn them off from anime forever. Anyways, for episode 101, 101, the 101st episode of ASO Radio, this is NZ17 signing out. ASO Radio is copyright of NZ17 Productions. ASO Radio is licensed to the general public under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial share-alike license. Additional licenses available. For more information, visit us online at www.nz17.com.